Hello, and welcome to the Homeland Podcast. Step out to find out it's wet and warm, wet and warm. Tra-la-la, 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 tra-la-la. For a long time, you know, media... Our coverage of homelessness was you you go somewhere where homelessness is bad, you talk to a homeless person, hey, where are you from? Oh, you're from Missouri, uh, and you came here for the services. And, you know, I talk to folks all the time in my job who are like, yeah, I read, I heard this, you know, media report where someone came from, you know, Missouri, and they're here for, you know, our, you know, to just because everything is free, and we give people free mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. And we did a lot of that you know, anecdotal stuff. And this project, and I think that the values it reflects are, you know what, we need to take some time and we need to go a little bit deeper. We need to spend more time with these folks. Don't just stop with the, oh, hey, this person's not on the streets anymore. Awesome, they're housed. Well, are they still housed in three months or six months? Have they gotten back into society? That kind of thing. Really sticking with folks and really digging deep, like Jonathan said, on the numbers and, you know, being responsible about, not just taking the easy answer or the easy interview with the first homeless person you see on the sidewalk, um, but really trying to answer these questions in a way that is truthful. Um, I think that for a long time, media, just because of time constraints, hasn't been able to do that. On this episode of the podcast, I'm very pleased to have Jonathan Martin. I'm the editor of Project Homeless for the Seattle Times. And Scott Greenstone. I'm a reporter, but I'm also a producer and engagement editor with Project Homeless. With me to discuss the nexus between journalism and homelessness, and how one influences the other, and vice versa. Though I had been following the work of Project Homeless, I got to meet Jonathan and Scott, and importantly, see the passion and thoughtfulness with which they work, when I was invited to give an Ignite talk for them, which I'll link to in the show notes. Coming at the issue of homelessness as journalists has afforded them the opportunity to dive deeply into the data from an outside-in perspective that has helped the general public understand the complexities of the issue and perhaps break down some of the myths in our public discourse. We started our conversation by talking a little bit about what the Seattle Times is for the city of Seattle. Uh, Seattle Times has been owned by the Bleffin family for 121 years, I think. Um... I think making that one of the longest family-owned newspapers in the country at this point, at least one of uh, the metro area. Um, very glad to not work for a corporate uh, overlord. Uh, and the Seattle Times has uh, uh, has had a history of trying to do uh, in very high-quality investigative reporting, uh, but also enterprise and explanatory reporting for kind of complex subjects. Like homelessness, and when uh, we started doing um, a sort of a deep dive focus um, about five years ago on education, got we got community funding, which basically um, grant funding um, to launch the education team, and that became such a success that then we did that with traffic, um, the traffic problem, and then while we were out talking to community funders for education and traffic. People kept telling us the thing you need to do is do one of these teams with homelessness. Mm-hmm. And that led to us launching in October uh, 
and I'm um, happy to say I think we're going to be around for a second year as well. What is what is the Project Homeless impaneled to do? What are, what are you trying to do with this this team of journalists uh, as you focus on the homeless issue? Well, you know, homelessness is such a complex issue because it's uh, it's a symptom of a lot of other uh, complex issues in society. So we're trying to explain uh, what how people become homeless um, and um, what what it means to be homeless. And we're also really trying to watchdog how the, particularly this uh, government uh, agencies have responded to it. What are their strategies to uh, reverse a um, homeless crisis that has uh, accelerated pretty significantly since about the end of 2013? Um, since that point in time, the number of people sleeping outside in a given night has doubled, more than doubled. Uh, and I think we can see that. Anybody who's in this area now um, sees that on a daily basis. So what is what is your team look like? How many staff members do you have working on this full time? Is this the only thing that those journalists are, are working on? Or are they split splitting time? Yeah, we have uh, two reporters uh, and uh, working full time. Viana Davila, um, who's taken a specialty really in looking at unsanctioned tent camping and the, and all, and the responses to that. And Vernal Coleman, who's done really good watchdog reporting on um, the city strategies. Uh, and Scott Greenstone, uh, who is our engagement editor, but he's also done really fabulous uh, uh, writing on a bunch of different topics at this point. <laughs> kind of, Scott's kind of had the, uh, um, Scott's had kind of the broad range of stories at this point. Um, so, yeah, we're, our mission really is to explain and also to watchdog. Okay. In, in the explaining piece of things, what are the what are the things that, as you came into it, you didn't understand fully, or as you dug into the data, there was something revealed there that was totally against your expectations. What, what were some of those things that you learned about? Yeah, things I didn't expect. Well, I think that I was expecting mental illness and you know, I think drug addiction to be drivers of it. There are some things that did surprise me as far as like, for instance, foster care, when kids age out of foster care, 30% of them, I believe uh, is the statistic I was reading in research for the story I'm doing, um, become homeless. And I, that, that made sense when I started talking to homeless folks, because I talked to so many of them who were chronically homeless and they said, yeah, I was, I was a foster kid. And I think that, um, and this isn't so much a statistic, but, um, that to me is a symptom of like, I, I don't think I was, I don't think I was quite prepared for the kind of relational poverty that a lot of these folks are experiencing. What, um, what does that term mean? Relational poverty? Yeah. Yeah. Like, and I don't know, I've only heard this used informally. I don't know that I've read it in any academic papers, but like folks, a lot of these folks don't have family members who can support them or family members who want to talk to them. Um, a lot of them don't have friends. Maybe they moved here for a job and the job fell through. Maybe they moved here because they heard there was a $15 minimum wage and they were hoping to find a job and they thought, Hey, $15 an hour, I can pay for anything at that rate. And they moved here from Louisiana or Missouri. And I mean, the statistics we have on that are not good. Um, I think in the latest point in time count, um, we, from a survey that came out about 17% of the homeless people on our streets are from um, Washington, so areas, you know, where there aren't very good services, maybe, um, you know, coming here. 
and then about 6% are from outside of that. So it's really hard to tell how many folks are, are coming, um, you know, here for like a job or something like that. But I do talk to folks at like the Millionaire Club, which is sort of a temp agency for the homeless folks. And, um, you know, they say that, yeah, we, we do talk to a lot of people who come here and just can't afford housing. So I guess um, all that to say, it's it, I, w- I was the most surprised by the folks who, you know, were a lot like me, but when you know, trouble came, they just weren't able to, you know, turn to family, uh, or, uh, didn't have anyone in the area to help take care of them. Like I did when, you know, I've been in trouble in the past. Mm-hmm. Two things surprised me. Uh, first, the scope of it. Uh, we didn't, I, I knew we, I've lived in Seattle off and on since about 1990. Mm-hmm. And there's always been homeless people in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, there's always sort of been a, um, concentration in Pioneer Square and that kind of thing. Uh, but we're really kind of digging into the numbers and you realize that even those point in time count numbers, you know, I mentioned earlier that the people on the street had doubled since 2013, but that is just a snapshot count. The number of people that request homeless services in any given year in King County is actually about 30,000 people. And when we got that figure, it really kind of shocked me. The 30,000 individual people. Yes, unduplicated. So, like, the, the count that we get at the point in time count is 12,000, I think, is right. what it was for this year. So, there's an exponential factor of other people who are out there who are not counted at that one time. Well, yeah, I think about it in terms of, like, if you think about sort of the homeless services as a river, um, you know, the point in time count is just a one slice of the river at any one moment in time. Mm-hmm. But there's people that are flowing through the system because... Um, and that's just my second point is that I've been surprised at, uh, I knew, like I said, I, you know that, like Scott mentioned, we know people are homeless because of some kind of serious mental illness, um, serious chemical dependency problem, people who are just really gravely disabled, and, you know, that's why we need to have a safety net. Uh, but I've also been surprised at the number of people that are sort of episodically homeless or just homeless for a point in time and uh, for just a brief period of time. And really have this high motivation to get out of it mm. and to resolve their own um, own problem. Uh, and, you know, those stories really kind of the ones that give me a lot of, of hope um, that um, with the right kind of strategies and the right kind of um, spending um, that we can actually, we could actually reduce that 30,000. We could actually reduce that in the point in time count number down. Right, right. It, it seems like one of, one of the very interesting things about being a journalist that has always been true in in American society is that you do have the ability to affect the public sphere and the public debate. What kind of feedback have you gotten from policymakers and maybe just from the general public about the stories that you guys are reporting these days? You know, that's been really gratifying. Part of um, our, I mentioned, so our our funding for Project Homeless comes from a bunch of um, philanthropies and couple of businesses. And um, one of the things they ask us is like, what is your impact? And so we've got, we've actually developed a, a sort of a, this tracking tool of what kind of policy changes we're making or affecting. And it's been gratifying so far to see the policymakers repeatedly cite our original research and thinking through these problems. Mm. What we offer is a, there's people within the system, sort of within the bubble um, talk to each other, and they tend to have a relatively similar point of view on things. I think we offer sort of the um, outside-in perspective sure. and um, can put a lens on the 
on the data in a, in a, in a different way than maybe the people inside the system see it. So, you know, when one of the first things we did is we actually put together an all-in budget number. Um, nobody had put together how much actually ever we spend collectively as a county on operations for the homeless system. The city has its slice, the county has its slice, the state has its slice, the feds have its slice. We put it all in together and came up with uh, $196 million in operational spending a year in King County. And uh, I think that number was an eye-opener even for people inside the system and realizing that there's that sort of this the fractured way we sometimes do government um, is um, could be sort of reoriented. And if you put, put that $196 million, $196 million all in one direction, um, it could be more efficient. Yeah. And, and that is one of the things I think we would, I would point to thus far is that we've talked about this idea of how the homeless system is is governed, how it's structured. Right. It's really wonky stuff. It's not like, it's not very sexy. But really, um, I think it's sort of foundational. If right. you don't have a good way of um, having a coherent strategy, you don't know what your outcomes you're chasing. You don't know which outcomes you're chasing. Right. And we've written about that a few times. And last month, uh, Jenny Durkin and Dow Constantine decided... The mayor and the county executive here. Yeah, the mayor and the county executive here said, okay, we need to do this differently. And now they're um, starting a process to kind of fundamentally restructure the system. It seems like one of the other powerful tools that you all have at your disposal and have used in your reporting is the ability of using characters to tell story and to tell a human story. Um, Can you talk about maybe how some of the people who you've built stories around, uh, how their stories have changed just the general public's perception there's a couple of people that stick out to me. Um, the first story we did, um, Vernal Coleman did, um, about, um, we took this idea of people, you know, the shelter system is here. There's people that basically live in emergency shelter. And you think about what that looks like, you know, visualize a school gymnasium with mats on the floor. And every night those mats, every day those mats are cleared out, every night the mats are thrown down. Um, there's a guy named David McAleese that Vernal found that had been living in that situation basically about three and a half years. Mm. And you dig in his background a little bit, and we realized that he has a PhD in chemistry and had been a extremely successful pharmacy executive. And at middle age, well, it's a late middle age, he had um, kind of a break um, and got delusional um, and um, was unable... Uh, unable to move out of that, that system. Um, you know, after we wrote about that, David got a, um, got housed within about a week. People just offered a, a room to, for him. And I understand he's doing much better, but I mentioned earlier, sort of people wanting to, the surprise, the surprise thing is people trying to better their own lives. And, um, you know, David just thinking about like, um, man, it took a little bit of a bump for him to get back into housing and he's doing better now. You know, another one that comes to mind, um, we did this, uh, Viana has done a series of stories about um, people living in cars, vehicles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, she was out reporting um, about how Seattle basically doesn't have a strategy to do this, yeah. Yeah. Um, which is strange because half the people that are sleeping outside on a given night are sleeping in cars. And when she was out reporting on this, she came across um, a young woman and um, she didn't really talk much about it to her at the time. But a couple days later, she realized that she had OD'd right after she met she met this young woman, um, Samantha. And um, 
we wrote about, we included this in a story, and then her parents came over from the Wizard in Spokane, um, came over to claim her body, and mm-hmm. Viana went out for um, to this really um, just sad vehicle lot in South Seattle where this woman was living in an RV, and her parents just sort of got completely shaken, realizing where their daughter had been living. Um, that story really kind of, as a parent, that story really kind of shook me. So let's turn to you, Scott, and your work, because um, it seems like one of the things that this particular initiative uh, from the Times, which is, you know, like you said, 120 years old, black and white newsprint kind of an organization, you're really trying to bust beyond those confines and, and do engagement in a different way and get these stories out there. Um, can you maybe talk about the um, Ignite Seattle Project Homeless piece that, that you did a couple weeks ago and what the intent was there. I want to give credit where credit is due. Our first project, Education Lab, which uh, Jonathan brought up, you know, was the first to, as part of their mandate, to do these events. And so we we looked at, you know, what's the most effective way to change, you know, people's perceptions of homelessness. We've talked, you know, about this before, but like Jonathan has often said, one of the things we realized when we got into this uh, job and especially like something, something that, that we did ourselves was, you know, when you think about homelessness, people think about, you know, someone sleeping on the sidewalk, someone sleeping in a tent, you know, really like chronic homelessness, which is a small percentage of actually, you know, all the homeless folks. When we talk about 11,000 or 30,000 people in King County that are homeless, they, those are not all people that are out on the streets. And so part of our mandate was we really do want to change people's perceptions of what homelessness means. Maybe it is the guy with a PhD that just lives in shelters day to day. Or, you know, maybe like with that Ignite Project Homeless event, um, maybe it's a woman with two master's degrees, you know, uh, uh, who does oral habilitation um, and just, you know, was bankrupted by medical bills. Or, you know, um, maybe it's someone like uh, Amanda Richer who came from another state to look for her son and just... The cost of housing was so high. She was dealing with her own sort of medical emergencies. She just couldn't get housing uh, until, you know, recently. But um, so so when we were looking at what what's one way we can do that, what's one way we can change those perceptions, we thought, you know, we should really get these people in a room with, we, we should really get our, our public in a room. A story can go far, but it can't, you know, as many photos as we have, as many videos as we have, it can't do the work of when you're sitting in a room and you're hearing someone tell their story. Um, that's really powerful. So we did this ignite project homeless event. You spoke, um, and many other folks who had actually experienced homelessness told the stories of how they fell into homelessness and sometimes how they got out. And in some cases how they didn't. Mm -hmm. And we did hear from that, you know, from people who went to that event that it was really powerful to be right there face to face with, homeless folks and it also had a visual presence so it's lived on what, what's the, been the feedback kind of for people who are watching it online or who have been encountered it afterwards yeah we've heard good feedback we're taking each video and each story and kind of um presenting them online as like a ted talk or a you know moth radio hour piece so so um you know, putting them on Facebook and, and that's been well received as well. We've only put out one so far. I was hoping to get a second one today, but we'll have, you know, we'll be releasing them um, throughout the next couple of months. And yeah, it's been really good feedback. Awesome. 
And one thing that you announced uh, at the end of that talk was uh, a new initiative that the Project Homeless is rolling out, which is the ASCA version of things. Yeah. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what the intent is there? Yeah, we get tons of questions about homelessness. Uh, as Jonathan talked about, you know, <laughs> it's a, such a complex issue. Some, um, I remember one academic when I, that I was talking to referred to it as a wicked problem in the sense that it is like, it's this problem that no one seems to agree what the causes are um, and what the fixes are. And so obviously like the normal person on the streets has like tons of questions about it. Um, and, and so we had been getting so many emails and so many calls that we just said, you know what, we need a way to have our, we don't have time to answer all these questions. We need a way to have our audience let us know what is the most burning question on our mind. So if you go to like st.news slash askprojecthomeless, it'll explain this whole thing. But we're partnering with Harkin, which is an engagement um, company. And, and basically, um, we're going to have, we're going to take people's questions. We've gotten about close to 500 by now. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> I, I, I spent a lot few days going through them. It is a lot of questions. It's a lot of questions, yeah. So we're going to take all those questions and we're going to let our audience vote on, we're, we're going to pick, you know, we're not going to have them vote on all 500. We're going to pick some ones that we see again and again and again. Um, and we're going to have our audience vote. And then we're going to spend, you know, on, on which ones they want us to answer. And we're going to spend time and dig deep and really try and answer those questions to the point where our audience really feels like, Oh, okay. I understand that. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So not a one line answer and these are going to be kind of deeper investigative pieces. It's, you know, like I said, the the complexity of the problem is really, I can really can't sort of understate it. Um, you know, people will ask, you know, well, they Scott kind of mentioned this sort of this, there's this sort of free addle, meme I'm air quotes right now where people come here because the services are awesome um, and um, I think that, it, that there's a lot of assumptions that come with that well um, finding out how many people it's a good question how many people are from here and how many people are not from here I also think there's some context to put around that is how many people are not from here who are also working um, Seattle's had a massive influx of, sure. of newcomers um, but we're going to try and that's the kind of thing that I think eventually I know we're going to to dig into that um, and unpack what we know about um, what the data tells us. We kind of, that's where we start with most of our stories. Um, and certainly we're going to, with this, the, there is a story that data will tell you. And then there's also um, contextualizing. Um, I'm really excited about that. I think this is going to be uh, a terrific opportunity to, um, you know, enlighten our readers, I hope. Um, I also hope that our, our readers are willing to hear an answer that maybe might be outside their preconceptions. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been very surprised at how politicized homelessness has been. When we went out and were fundraising for Project Homeless, as well, or, uh, for the Project Homeless team a couple of years ago, it was a crisis then. It would already been declared a crisis. But the level of heat, uh, political heat around homelessness, has just gotten super amplified. And it's hard to have a reasonable conversation about um, complex, these complex topics. Was it was it partisan political or is it a different kind of political? Proximity political, maybe. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I don't... Partis, the thing is, in, in Seattle, partisanship means something different than, than most <laughs> parts Which of the country. Which state of blue are you? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's... Uh, I, think the, I think the vote for Hillary Clinton in Seattle was like, really like 90%. So it's an entirely blue city. 
So, but within the Seattle politics, there are, there are gradations, um, and sometimes they reflect people's living and circumstances. People who have been here for a while, have homes, um, have kids, might have a different view than the uh, younger residents of Seattle, and there's a lot of those. There's a real generational divide that's mm-hmm. happening in Seattle right now, because particularly because of the Amazon boom. Um, so... Um, Answering people's questions based on their preconceptions is going to be hard. I think that there's also, um, we're at a moment in our political discourse right now at the the national level, but I think also local level where civility has gotten, um, uh, gotten a little, taken a little backseat to political purity. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, that is going to complicate, I think, our task with podcast project moments. You think so, Scott? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm working on a story right now that, yeah, there has been obviously like in the past two years, the explosion of homelessness in the past, you know, several years has really, I think, exacerbated people's, um, you know, their their frustrations, and um, I think we do see, you know, uh, to Jonathan's point, the Ballard Town Hall from May, and. Um, Especially, I think in, like, this was a particularly Seattle. negative uh, yeah. public engagement meeting that one of the council members had hosted. Yeah. yeah, yeah, one of the council members yeah hosted it, and I talked to even folks who don't agree with that council member and who agreed with the people who were yelling. But even they said, like, well, it, it was too much for me. Like, I, I didn't. I kind of shut down because of the massive amount of confrontation. And I think folks are very emotional. Homeowners who feel that their neighborhoods are, I don't know, under assault and. Um, some of the younger folks who feel that, um, or, or I don't know about younger, but maybe more on the socialist alternative, the, the, the socialist really left um, side, they feel like um, homeless people's civil rights are under attack. There's just a lot of, a lot of emotions running really high. So July 19th of this year, you guys are doing for the third year in a row, I think, uh, collaboration with a number of local news outfits, uh, KUOW, who's the public uh, radio station in town, online journalist outfit called Crosscut, a number of other organizations, a day that the entire kind of fourth estate community is focusing on homelessness. A little background on on how that came about and kind of why you guys are participating and and what you're hoping to achieve from it. Sure. Uh, this was this is like a, like a lot of things that happened in Seattle. We stole it from San Francisco, <laughs> <laughs> but they've stolen some stuff. <laughs> That's very true. Yes. Uh, and we have a much better football team. Um, <laughs> um, uh, so uh, San Francisco has done this Day of Homelessness um, coverage for a number of years and started because the the news outlets there didn't feel like the civic government, the city government, was really paying enough attention. And it was sort of like a grab the lapels kind of move by um, the press corps. Mm. Uh, and so um, I'll give credit to the um, editor of Crosscut, Greg Hanscom, who saw that and said, hey, let's, um, let's try and be sort of collaborative across um, our um, news media here in Seattle. And he's organized this now for this going to the third year. Uh, I am excited. This is the first year that there's going to be a, um, a media collaborative news project. Oh. Um, each of us, um, each of the media outlets are taking sort of a slice of uh, the homeless issues um, and um, we're going to be telling it on our platforms and we're going to be sharing it across everybody else's. So uh, I, I'm, ex- I'm excited to see how this comes out. I 
We'll see. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, a newsroom on a good day is um, like herding cats, and then we're adding five newsrooms together. So, <laughs> cats upon cats upon cats, cats upon cats. <laughs> which which will get you a lot of clicks right here. <laughs> um, so so maybe let's end on just a, a little bit of reflection on kind of where journalism is right now and where this project, this initiative fits within the larger purpose of journalism. I mean, we're, we're recording this a day after the shootings in Annapolis. Um, we've talked around issues of civility and kind of general um, bad-mouthing of journalism within, within the public sphere over the last several years. How do you think a project like this, coming out of a long-established daily newspaper that is embedded in the community, um, speak to the values that journalism provides to American democracy and to the communities that it, that it sits in? Oh, I just want to say one thing. Um, <laughs> I, I don't really want to like fully answer the question, but this was something I was thinking about earlier. Just to bring it back to homelessness, for a long time, you know, media, our coverage of homelessness was you, you go somewhere where homelessness is bad, you talk to a homeless person, hey, where are you from? Oh, you're from Missouri, uh, and you came here for the services. And, you know, I talk to folks all the time in my job who are like, yeah, I read, I heard this, you know, media report where someone came from, you know, Missouri and they're here for, you know, our, you know, to just because everything is free and we give people free Mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. And we did a lot of that, you know, anecdotal stuff. And this project, and I think that the values it reflects are you know what, we need to take some time and we need to go a little bit deeper. We need to spend more time with these folks. Don't just stop with the, oh, hey, this person's not on the streets anymore. Awesome, they're housed. Well, are they still housed in three months or six months? Have they gotten back into society? That kind of thing. Really sticking with folks and really digging deep, like Jonathan said, on the numbers and you know, being responsible about not just taking the easy answer or the easy interview with the first homeless person you see on the sidewalk, um, but really trying to answer these questions in a way that is truthful. Um, I think that for a long time, media, just because of time constraints, hasn't been able to do that. Um, and that's what I would say. Mm. So good questions about the sort of the state of the medium. Um, you know, um, yeah, the, the shooting in Maryland, I think, hits everybody um, in this newsroom just, you know, like a gut punch. To be a journalist means that you, you, you give up quite a bit. Uh, and... It's a great job. I love the job. I'm 20, almost 25 years into a profession. I'm going to stay in it, but it means you give up higher pay. Um, you give up hours. It's hard on your family sometimes. It's hard on your mental health. And partly, um, it's because people in the community react differently to your stories. You, you are highly accountable on a daily basis, um, to, for what you do and what you do oftentimes quite quickly <laughs> on deadline. Um, you know, in, in the backdrop of that, we also our newsroom has also shrunk by about half since I arrived here in Seattle in 2002. Um, there's about half as many journalists um, working in Seattle right now as there were about a decade ago. Um, and I really fear for um, what that means for society. Uh, I think that we have the, one of the, the foundations of a civil society uh, is uh, your right to petition the government. And most efficient way of doing that is through the media. I don't know going forward what 
that means for our um, integrity of government. I certainly think that fewer stories mean there's less trust in government. Um, and um, I, I fear it's also, as the main, particularly the mainstream media has retreated, um, it's also opened up space um, for alternative voices, which is awesome. It, you know, there's never been a greater diversity of voices um, in the media and ecosystem. But it also means that people who are paid reporters who are able to go do um, the deep dive reporting that um, holds governments accountable um, are oftentimes just not there. We don't have a reporter right now covering King County. King County is a $2 billion government. Um, there's a total of about five or six people covering all of Olympia uh, and state government. Um, that's a $43 billion um, biannual budget. And that's um, not just Seattle Times. No, that's, that's six, six people. Yeah, that's across the whole the whole state. Um, so um, one of the things, on the other hand, being part of this project where we're getting, was, we are funded with a different model. We are funded basically with a public radio model. Um, and we're asked, we've asked at this point, fairly rich people <laughs> um, and foundations to fund us. Um, but it is a new way of, of funding journalists. There are now, you know, nine or 10 reporters in our newsroom that are funded in this model. Uh, and your daily paper would look very differently without this. Um, I think the model is working so far. And that's one of the things that gives me hope that um, we are we are eventually the um, media environment is going to, I think, going to settle out. And there's going to be a way of um, funding good journalism. That might be because people realize they need to pay for it, that free news is not good news. Um, people hopefully at some point will realize that the cost of their Netflix subscription might also be worth the cost of their newspaper subscription. Um, but, um, you know, I don't know if I've, I don't know if I've, I've got a lot of comp complicated reactions to your question, particularly since I just think about those folks in Maryland diving under their desks because a guy didn't like a news cover, news story they did seven years before. Um, and that that was the, that was the response that, Instead of talking about it, you know, asking for a correction, you know, writing a letter to your editor, he came in with a, a shotgun. Thank you for listening. This podcast is part of the Homeland Project. We invite you to learn more about the project at homelandlab.com. Our work would not be possible without the support of MIGSVR and the Landscape Architecture Foundation's Innovation and Leadership Fellowship. To learn more about the tremendous work of LAF, please visit their website at lafoundation.org. Finally, we want to thank our friends at Yves for the use of their music. You can learn more about the band and find out about their debut album at thesoundofyves.com. <laughs>